This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I would like to start a conversation uh, with asking him to clarify the idea of bullying, because uh, all of us have uh, uh, experiences with bullying, but mostly that is uh, confined to schoolyards. And my question is, uh, how is this concept, which we uh, get acquainted to at a very early age, then scales up to a larger societal scale? Thank you, Akash. First of all, let me just say I'm so delighted to be back here. Uh, I spent many years in this department and on this campus serving in different ways as a researcher and teacher and also in administrative capacity. And I'm just thrilled to be able to come back and take what is uh, um, years of research and bring them to uh, issues of of public interest. And and, uh, and this particular topic did um, is something that I've been observing, watching, studying for years, but it's taking on a new urgency right now. And this is a welcome opportunity to come back and present to my old colleagues and friends um, uh, some of my ideas. So bullying, very good question. What is it? Um, It's a concept we all know, but it's also a concept that's a bit slippery and a bit difficult. So um, as you said, Akash, uh, we're all familiar with the, the use of the word bullying in the K through 12 context, meaning uh, primary and secondary education. Those things that go terribly wrong in the locker room or, um, or in the, uh, in the ca- cafeteria or schoolyard, right? And, uh, but about 10 years ago, actually just as I was beginning to pick up on it myself, it's begun to migrate that term and it's beyond the uh, confines of the school, beyond the confines of the schoolyard, the cafeteria, and so on, where all this bad behavior generally is understood to take place. Okay, and so that, so what? How how does it scale up, or how does it move around, and how has it moved around in the culture? So first of all, um, let me just say that, in terms of, um, let me just describe what bullying is. Um, Bullying is a, an, you know, it's an act of uh, aggression and coercion. I think we've all experienced it in, 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 our, in our primary and secondary years. And the one thing about the, however terrible that experience was, it's understood that we'll get over it. Oh, you'll get over it. It was often a frequent response to a tearful child um, or a student. It was understood to be maybe part of a developmental stage that we will all grow out of. But it was not something that was understood really to, con- to persist in childhood, either in the form of a memory or in the form of a new experience. Okay? So um, what it does is, as I think we all know, it, it's a very preemptive form of aggression. It comes at an unexpected moment in many cases. Uh, it can even come from an unexpected source, fr- uh, notoriously in schools, best of friends turn on each other and betray each other and treat each other rather shabbily. And it's a form of a preemptive aggression that is meant to put the other party, the opponent, or rather the target, uh, the ex-friend, on the defensive, uh, humiliate them, 
Uh, better still, if it's done in, the, uh, in, pu- in some public manner that's witnessed by others, and then particularly if you're thinking of the more larger political context, recorded by the media. All right? So there's a publicness to it that gives it a particular edge, but it doesn't have to be public. A lot of this can take, uh, take place, uh, obviously, just between two individuals out of earshot and sight of other people. So that's what bullying is. Now, it's been studied uh, by you know, social psychologists and others, and psychologists in general, and what's, what, when it becomes almost, it becomes a policy issue is it's when it becomes disabling, meaning it prevents, in this, the K-12 context, the child from being able to come to school, pursue his or her studies, and graduate and go on. And so when it has that kind of outcome, that sort of destructive outcome, when it really transforms the capacity of the student to perform, uh, then, then it becomes a, a real issue and has become a real concern. Now, in the, 10 years ago, it began to migrate, and this is a whole, um, to other arenas of public life. Uh, workplace, obviously the media, that even goes back, I would say, 20, 25 years ago. Now, speaking of the realm of politics, you know, bad behavior is nothing new. Politics is not about being nice. It's not a, it's, it's a, it's a, an aggressive arena. So bullying, in, a funny, in this funny sense, has always been there, but it's never been named as such. And why now is a, is a really good question. So what do they... Sh- so, what are they um, so scaling up, say, to politics, what's the difference, or what, what, what's the difference between po- this kind of bullying that we may experience, have experienced, say, in, 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 in high school or, or whatever, and something called political intimidation or what I call public bullying. Well, one, they actually share quite a bit. And not simply this preemptiveness and this notion of uh, and this, this, uh, seeking out to humiliate the other party and paralyze the other party. But what they share is also, uh, as a common weapon, is to target the other person's motives and character. Now, why target the other person's motives and character? Well, for, first of all, and primarily, um, it's something, these allegations about motive and character are extremely are difficult to prove, all right, but they're even more difficult to disprove. And that throws the other party on, on the defensive. How do you explain away an accusation of, uh, of motive or of uh, character to, and particularly in a public, in a, in a public uh, forum of some kind, be it on television or in a debate or on the street or whatever, it's extremely difficult to do. And it's, it's particularly extremely difficult to do in a harsh political climate where cynicism reigns, cheap, speculative um, um, uh, think, uh, 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 speculations on, 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 on people uh, are, are, are run wild. So that's a very difficult environment in, in, uh, in which to counter these kinds of baseless uh, um, accusations, baseless allegations. And so put on the defensive, it's seen in this kind of harsh environment as a sign of weakness. And then given our current harsh climate, which is a kind of gladiatorial th- uh, theater of dominance, any sign of weakness can be fatal to a political candidate. So that is what public intimidation and bullying can do, is really discredit the other party through this form of aggression. So to what extent do you see this as a, as a scaling up of something that people learn and somehow do, do not forget uh, from uh, high school? And to what extent do you see this as sort of a larger um, uh, sign of um, the, the infantilization 
of, of, of society and of, of public life. Okay. Um, I tend not to view it uh, as simply uh, as a regressive phenomenon. I think there's, there's something clearly childish about it, you might think, in the sense that it's unchecked impulses, it's, 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 it's a uns- it seems to be unsocialized behavior. However, it's become a method, and it's become a rather sophisticated method, uh, and a very well-developed weapon deployed by politicians and others. And that has a lot to do uh, with changes in the wider culture. And we can get into that a little bit later. Changes in the workplace, changes in the media sphere, changes in, in public life in general. And what I, what I would n- call a revolution in the limits of pub- acceptable public behavior and acceptable public speech. That revolution is what allows this bullying to become a method and become so effective. And at some point, it reaches a tipping point, and we're well past that tipping point, where it becomes almost self-reinforcing. You don't, it, it works very well. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a wonderful segue to, to, to the next question, uh, whether you see this as a historical process, mm-hmm. whether this is something that is much worse today than it used to be, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and what are the main sort of big milestones uh, in this progression that you are talking about in your book? Okay. What's the, prog- the progression I want to talk, I talked about it migrating, say, from K through 12 to other spheres of life. There's also a different progression, which is part of this story, which is over here you have elections, political campaigns. They're punctual. It's every two years, every four years. They're a de- you know, uh, determinate length of time. In the U.S., it's o- they're overly long. It's an 18-month campaign. It's not a three-month campaign for the presidency like in other countries. And then over here we have our ordinary daily experience of bullying and uh, whatever. That, what's happening is those two different kinds of aggression and moments of aggression have become melded, have fused together, such that we have political intimidation every day. It's part of our ordinary life. And part of the toll of this harsh political climate, public climate that we're all living in, and it's been, uh, and, and I would argue it's been building over 30 years, is that it being on a daily basis, and particularly, and it hits us at an emotional level, it takes a toll in the form of exhaustion, anxiety, distraction, and so on and so forth. But to return to your question uh, in terms of historical examples, politically, very simply, um, we can go back to the first racist attack ads uh, that I think some people in this room still may remember, which are like the Willie Horton attack ads, uh, ads of 1988 featuring a recently released felon who then committed a, um, a, a, a murder or a rape, and it was used in a, a, to basically discredit and destroy the candidacy of Michael Dukakis. All right? it, wasn't the only, it was one of the major elements that helped destroy his candidacy. Then you, the, another example is the, uh, what happened in Florida in 2000 during the presidential elections. Political operatives were sent down to intimidate the poll workers who were decounting those hanging chads, if you remember that whole episode. And that was just part of a whole campaign orchestrated not simply in Florida, but actually nationally, to basically um, win the election uh, at the expense of, 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 you know, democratic participation, right? Followed by a year later, um, I'm sorry, uh, several years later, um, or actually right, right before that, we had the impeachment of Bill Clinton. All right? uh, and then several years before that, if you remember, in 1995, we had a government shutdown. 
It's, and we're facing a possible government shutdown of not this month, perhaps next month. All right. So there are these political examples of, of very aggressive uh, taxes, uh, uh, tactics which violate either uh, standard or tacit protocols, understandings of, of, you know, of the limits of acceptable behavior in the realm of politics, and so on and so forth. Now, there are other things, there's, but there's this other history. And I, when it comes to you know, re- the recent turn in, uh, you know, the recent political, recent uh, elections last fall, um, people were astonished that we have a certain occupant in the White House right now. And a lot of people were saying, and they still say, well, we, uh, this was a protest against the, the globalizing economy, uh, stagnant wages going back 30 years for 70% of American households, uh, all, all these economic, you know, the recent uh, um, uh, financial collapse in 2008 with no real redress for people who lost their houses. You know, 13 million people lost their mortgages. All right? uh, banks responsible for m- much of this damage were never held to account. So a lot of anger had been building up, particularly over economic reasons. Um, then there are these transformations also in the wider culture that I, I spoke, I tried to, uh, I was alluding to earlier, the workplace, the media, and so on. Again, there's been a lot of focus on cable television and the talk shows, AM radio talk shows, very aggressive fora of gladiatorial combat, um, also the very comp- viciously competitive reality TV shows. All that has contributed to a kind of transformation of the world of media that we spend so much time on, not to mention, of course, social media and, and with that cyberbullying. Right. But I don't want to focus so much on that today because one, th- one sphere, there are two things that I think that have been ignored. First of all, this country has been at war for 16 years, the war on terror, since 2001. And I don't, it's really astonishing to me that as everyone decries and talks about and, and, and uh, about this harsh uh, in political environment that we're living in, this harsh public life that we're living in, no one mentions the fact that we've been at war for 16 years. And anyone who's experienced a wartime, uh, uh, wartime, uh, be it the Vietnam War or what have you, or the first Iraq War, or whatever, it creates an extraordinary climate. It transforms the national climate into one that's much more harsh, much more intolerant, much more, um, um, uh, you know, it gives license to all sorts of aggressive forms of speech and behavior. That is something that's just ignored and not talked about. So I think that's part of what gives, gives it an edge. And then the second thing, if I may, uh, is the workplace. And that's the workplace has been transformed. And um, shall I say a little more about yes, the workplace? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. So the workplace um, has been undergoing a, a major transformation since the early 1980s. Um, um, the workplace, um, under, basically American companies under pressure from banks to produce unheard of returns on their investments on their, product, uh, on their products, something like 20%. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an unreachable number. Um, the, um, what, did, what did companies do? They began to engage in mergers, borrow money at untold, at untold level, levels in order to do those mergers, downsizing, downsizing their workforce, um, cutting wages, on and on and on. And that has created a hellacious workplace for many workers, those who were able to hold on to their jobs, uh, offshoring, moving factories down to the, uh, out of the northern states to the southern states or out of the country. But also um, 
what's, what came along at the same time was a new management philosophy and a new set of managerial practices, which was taking what was already, you know, I mean, the workplace is not exactly a, uh, the most democratic place, uh, uh, but, and it, but it is where most working adults spend the majority of their waking hours. And that workplace changed, not only in the sense of greater economic insecurity, but also enormous pressures coming from management. And those forms of the pressure took very aggressive uh, shapes, and, it, and the business press began to laud and praise to the skies what they called the bullying boss, the tyrannical bullying boss. And so that, and they, every four or five years, Business Week, uh, Fortune magazine would come up with lists of America's 10 toughest bosses who would be praised for making those tough decisions of cutting their workforce and cutting wages and, uh, and so on and so forth. But also in, uh, for their harsh managerial style, their intimidating managerial style. And, and so they, in, the, in the workplace, workers de- uh, and, and the press developed a whole set of uh, epithets, uh, chainsaw, to, de- to designate these, kind of, these guys, mostly men, of course. Uh, chainsaw, Prince of Darkness, Rambo and Pinstripes, that sort of thing. Now, it's interesting, uh, women employees, and this is something I found out by asking, I know people who are consultants and managers and, and office workers, and they said, oh, yeah, and, the, and women, thus impressed by this male personality type, came up with a different, different uh, label, which was, Big Swinging Dick, or BD, uh, BSD. And it, it's still current in the workplace. You ask women who are working in offices, and this is something that's used to, to designate an, a tyrannical boss. All right? And so that world, along with the media, has, and the, this, this is where the limits of acceptable speech and behavior began to be revolutionized, in the workplace and in the media. And of course, that, that is a silent legitimization of bad behavior in politics. So all these different spheres kind of converge to create a, what I would call a generalized culture of uh, bullying. So I would just like to push to you a little more on, okay. the, on, the, on the timing of this, because yes. in your book, you basically date this to the early 1980s, late That's, 1970s, right. which sounds about right. But um, I think what also happened around the time was that... Uh, America woke up to a new world. Of course. Uh, this is after the oil crisis. There right. was this era after World War II mm-hmm. when um, uh, the United States was ruling the world and economically every, everything was up and up. Um, we had unions that were really, really strong exactly. uh, who were also beneficiaries of American hegemony in the world. Mm-hmm. And basically at the end of, that, uh, of the 70s, American hegemony... Uh, 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 collapsed or, or started to sort of shake. Uh, the Iranian hostage crisis was sort of the, one of the symbolic. So, so in some ways, uh, you could see this as a reaction to globalization arriving Completely. to the United, right. United States and sort of becoming one of the countries, not just the country who can impose mm-hmm. uh, the uh, globalization on, on others, but also participants and takers. Right, exactly. So um, uh, th- uh, there's a sense. Of, this goes back to this whole sense of economic vulnerability, but it's also a, s- a sense of, of a national purpose, national self, and so on and so forth. And so it's uh, the the basically the, the defeat of, uh, of American forces in Vietnam 
which was virtually just a year or two after the oil crisis. That kind of, we were talking about different forms of convergence. Right. And so uh, that created a, a, a kind of crisis in terms of American, American, many American self-image, an image of our, our uh, sense of ourselves in the world, and the you know um, many politicians campaigned on getting beyond the, uh, what was it called the Vietnam syndrome or some some sense of, of of hesitancy that was introduced into American foreign policy and American sense of purpose in the world, which was uh, a lack of self-confidence. That self-confidence was damaged, and so. Um, but also, you know, you could read it as, some of it as a, a sense of um, uh, a sense of prerogative that had been com- compromised, and that that can bleed into, you know, eventually into domestic affairs and daily life and so on. Particularly as, say, unions declined and other forms of protection, just speaking of the workplace, of workers began to to oh. disappear, and so. Uh, but it's a, it's a very complex process to go from a, a, a kind of, a, but, but as we've been watching today, um, a lot of those anxieties and a lot of this, uh, these forms of behaviors, uh, of behavior, are now being very much exploited and connected to a new sense of national purpose today, right? Uh, a re- some form of renewing America. Yeah, and so um, that so the May two the are first. quite linked. Yes. Yeah, so it's a, again returning to a, a a desire for that kind of hegemony, as you call it, or a kind of uh, global trip. bullying. Well, you, right. I I I'm um, I'm a little hesitant to use the word bullying. Even I, I try to make it uh, yes, absolutely. But I don't like to overuse the word because the more you use it, the more it, you eventually won't have much meaning. Won't have much. Per- it won't help us describe what's going on. But certainly forms of aggression. Um, but yes. So <laughs> so this might be a good place to to sort of um, look at the different mechanisms through which sure. bullying is working its way through our. Public uh, life mm. and 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 how how is it that that uh, po- political intimidation and and, and, and public bullying uh, is so effective? How, how does it how how does it what are the mechanisms through which it sort of uh, uh, achieves its goals? Okay, well um, again this this will just repeat many things I think you already know. But part of what I hope this book can do is draw the uh, lines between the dots. I think we all know the dots. Maybe the lines are not so clear, and provide a certain kind of perspective. So, first of all, it's as I said, it's preemptive. Speed and surprise are everything. And when in a media-saturated world, the element of surprise is absolutely capital. It bespeaks, it creates a buzz, but it also bespeaks power. Okay, and that is just uh, absolutely crucial. And then comes, uh, I would say, uh, particularly. Speed and volume, meaning it's not just one event. It's a whole set of events. It's not just at the end of the week or over the weekend or whatever. It's every day, right? And it's this repetition. And this is, of course, aided immensely by social media, where you can actually, it becomes a 24-7 thing. So going back to my point a little bit about, say, daily bullying, which hopefully we have, none of us has had on a daily basis, but it's more part woven into daily life. And then this political world, 
where it's part of a, say, campaign, the two, in my opinion, have been come and melded together such that we get political intimidation and bullying, public bullying on, a day, on, uh, on that daily basis. And that's made possible through social media. And it's, um, so, so, I mean, so, I mean so, social media is obviously a, a, a culprit here because um, it's an enabler. It's an uh, exactly. It, it's an, an enabler, and and what we see now is so. If, if you look at the last fifty years, we see that people got more and more choice in mm. terms of what they have to listen to and what Absolutely, they have, what, right. what facts yeah. they have to expose right, themselves right. and what opinions they have right. to expose themselves to, and um, and that. So how do you see that as, 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 as sort of incubating a certain viciousness and a certain sort of aggression? Well, it makes it easy. I mean, it's, 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 I think early on with email, all right, not, not even social media, I think part of the problem with email is, one, uh, everyone experienced it. It's easy to write something and then hit the send button without, you know, without really thinking twice. It's also that those short it's telegraphic messages can be interpreted in, mil- and in different ways. There's not enough information, not enough context for the receiver to understand exactly you know, what your tone is, what you're really trying to say, and so on and so forth. So lots of miscommunication and, oh, happened back then. Uh, lots of strife, lots of uh, unfortunate uh, uh, um, conflict. But then those who are of that mind exactly know how to use that pre- precisely to achieve those effects. So. Um, so social media is something. One thing that social media is particularly good at so is is to personalize it in a, in a certain way. I mean, as strange as Facebook might be and, and impersonal it might be, it offers a strange form of intimacy in public. All right, the tweet is from you, or it comes directly to you, and um, and so, uh, because it comes into your um, your twi- Twitter account, so. Uh, it turns something that might have been just a spectacle of public viciousness that you would witness and it would be highly uncomfortable, uh, discomforting, and so on, into something that in which you are not, you are directly, uh, in, 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 uh, um, it comes directly to you and it elicits some kind of reaction, even if it's one uh, where you're trying to ignore it. But you can't, it's a little, it's more inescapable. And it's also more, and, and it cuts a little more deeply. And, and it's also much more easy to participate in. You just you just tweet back, you 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 post, you share, um, what have you. It's very very easy to get caught up in these kinds of back back and forth, and they're very uh, they can be very destructive. Well, at the same time, there is also so, so also a self reinforcing. Uh, process mm-hmm. whereby you are communicating with people who uh, have nothing but praise and right. and encouragement for mm-hmm. you, which of course sort of makes things even more, makes you even more determined and less uh, consci- less considerate of the consequences. Right. right. Uh, but there is another thing as well. I think that there is a general lack of decorum. Uh, if you look at how people conduct. The, conducted themselves 20, 30 years ago, uh, there was an effort to use a different language with strangers, to, uh, to dress differently, to uh, behave differently. Right, right. And we don't have that anymore. Uh, uh, we are sort of informal everywhere. Right. And that is partly because uh, there is so much information out there mm-hmm. about every person. You don't have to signal that right. you are a good sort. Right. Uh, so... So, so that also creates a, uh, it removes an obstacle mm-hmm. uh, 
to, towards sort of the kind of viciousness and, 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 and personalized venom that you will find. Right, in it's raw. It's very yes. raw right now. Um, I actually would like to read a little p- uh, passage from the book that captures, in my mind, how the, the sort of emotional experience of bullying, because we're talking a lot about emotion here in the sense that what's so exhausting about the current uh, harsh climate is that, as I was just saying, it, it hits us more directly, because, partly because of these um, new, new forms of uh, communication. But, it's also, uh, but it also is that, you know, poli- you know political intimidation and, and, and ordinary experience, they're now, to, they're now folded in together. And I, I'd like to read a passage that tries to d- just trans, um, trans- translate or communicate that experience. And um, so, we think we know who they are. They cut you off on the highway, they taunt you to your face, mock you behind your back, smirk at you from the TV screen, standing always beyond reach. They are everywhere and anywhere, from the schoolyard to the boardroom, from the office cubicle to your local bar. They come unbidden, visiting violence upon the unsuspecting and fearful alike. They now lurk even in your pocket, wherever you go, and you can feel the buzz as trolls spew 140-character poison to anyone and everyone. You can't get away even when you go home. You can't get away from the pervasive climate of intimidation and disrespect. You turn on your TV or laptop, and there they are, injecting venom and fear through old and new media. Requiring little or no provocation, they are poised to strike at the first sign of weakness or of courage. For they tolerate no one, no one but their own kind, belligerent aggressors ready to declare who's fit to speak, to listen, and to submit. The violence, the intimidation, you think you're ready. Perhaps you've experienced it before, but still, when it happens, especially to you, your person, your body, the body politic, its sheer power, speed, and intensity bypass whatever defenses you may have. From the edges of consciousness, the aggressors rush up, attacking and screaming in your face, you're nothing but scum, a liberal, a feminist, a Muslim, a self-hating Jew, an immigrant, a Bernie bro, a Putin stooge, a nasty woman, a faggot, a loser. Bewildered, we are thrown off balance. We can't believe it's happening. Be it again or for the first time, it seems to make no difference. The hormonal response wells up, fight or flight, but it's already too late. Something has slipped under our skin and taken over. Disoriented and at a loss for words, we have the creeping realization that whatever our sense of self was before, we can never quite retrieve it again. Thanks to bullying, we find ourselves forced into a life divided between what we are, or rather what we have become, and a former self that the bullies have somehow persuaded us and convinced us that we've lost. Something or someone has intruded, and violently so, and changed us. Our self-representation has been wrested away. We are, as it were, beyond our own reach. Something else is there, intimately there, a power and a weakness that we can't control. 
captive of our potential weakness and the aggressor's potential violence, we have entered into the infinite fearful regress, in fact, of future threat. If there wasn't a relationship before, there is one now, unbreakable even as it breaks us. If our sense of humiliation is severe enough, we respond by reasserting ourselves through bullying others in turn. Or in the case of the extreme distress of isolated young U.S. males consumed with self-loathing, taking a gun and shooting down teachers and students in classrooms and hallways before dispatching them, their own selves to oblivion. With bullying, the unthinkable has happened, and we feel betrayed, both by aggressors, but also by ourselves. How did they dare, we ask, but also, how did I let it happen? And there begins the endless search for a response. And part of the reason I wrote this book was to respond to the, those two questions. So actually, in this, in this beautiful in these beautiful passages, there's also a, a, a little kernel of the perverse part of bullying, which is the relationship. Yes. So uh, one of the things about bullying is that it creates an emotional bond. Yes. And I think one of the th reasons why bullying is so pervasive and people react to this and we cannot really ignore it is because it creates an emotional immediacy mm. and a tension in the world of data-deluge where, you know, nothing gets really, really focused on mm. um, that has a very, very perverse um, attraction. And I think when... Um, there's also a f familiarity to this. So mm -hmm. um, because it operates on, on, on such a visceral level, mm. you, um, complicated issues can be simplified Absolutely. to these very, very simple things that you recognize from your own uh, immediate experience. Exactly. So authenticity becomes an issue. So uh, one of the strangest things about bullies is that no one doubts their on authenticity. Nobody... Uh, uh, doubts their honesty, right? Mm. They, they, are, they, are, they are acting out of real viciousness, which is, which is uh, not mendacious, but which is sort of what they are. Yes. So, so, so how does that stack up? Uh, all these things which we sort of, in a very strange way, react to, because those are so authenticity, mm. connectedness, mm -hmm. Focus, mm -hmm. uh, because that's another thing. It, uh, the the anger gives you a focus, right? Right, exactly. Um, uh, so, so, so that is that is sort of the 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 attractive the attractive side, if I if I if I can use this word, right. of of this whole process. Well, uh, there's a lot to what you're saying, and uh, just going back to the realm of politics, uh, and 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 as opposed to more personal everyday bullying. Why do politicians deploy particularly allegations of, uh, you know, against uh, people's mode on, regarding people's motives and character? It's not only because they're difficult to disprove and so on and so forth, but they're an immense distraction from the real political issues, right? It empties politics of politics. What the stakes that a candidate may have in, in his or her candidacy, the policies he or she may want to implement, the issues of the day that citizens are bringing to both candidates or all candidates, all that gets lost in this focus 
and it's an emotional focus on these issues having to do with someone's character or motive or whatever. And that focus is not simply because it's about someone's personality, but it's the violence with which those allegations and those speculations are pursued. And so, and, and in a way, I would say that intensity which, uh, of the violence uh, which is, uh, and uh, I think this, it's important to point out, some, one of the things about the intensity is this. Those who are committing, or per, you know, the per perpetrators, those who are committing these acts, the kind of fear they're inducing in their targets, and it's not in targets, but it's also all those who observe it, right? Because it's me next, you know, that's the question people ask. Is uh, that intensity, um, it, 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 it not only... Uh, empties uh, you know, the, the, the issue, but it actually becomes the substance of the politics. Violence is what that candidate is all about, and that is, in certain cases, in certain extreme cases, to, in the eyes of some voters, some members of the public, that violence is the very sign of that person's freedom and the very sign of that person's authenticity. And it's not any particular one policy. It's more that, that violence or potential for violence or that promise of violence. And that's what's scary. You have not only an, uh, an, you know, an emptying out of uh, substantive issues from political debate, but substituted for it is not only bad behavior, but bad behavior that's considered riveting and, and legitimate. And of course, and of course, this works very, very well with our post-secret society, sure. uh, where you know there are no secrets anymore. Everything will come out, and the only way to sort of censor that or suppress it is to add to this the, the news a, a new one, which also has emotional intensity, because That's otherwise right. it would not provide the. So it's a, sort of a, this sort of pyramid where, where you always add uh, to bury the uh, original. Piece. Right, and, and that needs emotional intensity. Yeah, and it, 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 there's an accumulative effect, but it, with each with right. each act, no one the single each single act loses its particular valence or its particular potency. But it's that accumulation that really, uh, you know, has these long long term effects. And I think that's what's paralyzing our politics right now. And that's part of this harsh <laughs> climate that I think requires rethinking how we do politics, how we organize for politics, and so on and so forth. So tell us a little bit about how you see this as uh, challenging um, uh, public life, uh, civic action and political activism in particular, and uh, what are the snares and, and traps that we, can, okay. we have to well, be aware of? Um, as I said, we're facing a, a harsh political climate where, in a sense, we're in a political situation that's 24-7. There's no escaping it. You can't take the, you can barely take off the weekend unless you shut down all your, 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 your media um, and your devices. Uh, you don't talk to anyone and so on. It's very, very difficult. And so what's happened in a certain way, and it began, this, there's a history to this. Uh, you know, it's really interesting right now. There's some sort of nostalgia for George W. Bush, and gee, he wasn't such a bad guy after all by comparison. And the thing is, he's the one who actually, I think, created that tipping point that I'm talking about. 
And that had a lot to do not only with how he came to power in 2000, but also with the, the uh, build-up to the Iraq War uh, invasion, the Iraq invasion, and then the war on terror that he prosecuted. Uh, it was, you know, as we know, and going back, you know, in terms of a post-truth era, I mean, that was sovereignly, in, in, you know, introduced uh, and inaugurated through the, of course, weapons of mass destruction with the active collusion of the, some of the most, uh, you know, august media, media outlets in the United States, including the New York Times, who, to be polite about, slipped very badly. And, of course, it was, it was even worse than that. And so with that, you had a kind of... Uh, and then with the war on terror, you had all these fake code orange alerts based on either ba ba uh, out-of-date uh, uh, intelligence information or worse. And they were very strategically introduced around election time, particularly in 2004. Uh, you could watch it unfold. And so you had a form of, uh, but still you had a form of, um, of uh, intimidation more attached to campaigning that became a form of governing. A form of governing. So we were, and this is what we have with the current um, leadership in Washington. It is a form of governing now. It's not simply they're running for office. They are running the country using these these methods. And so uh, that real that transformation of public life and transformation of political activity means we have to come up with other forms of political engagement and other forms of political organization. And that's a tough thing because. It's a long haul. It's more than a simple election cycle. It's more than a, a finding a charismatic candidate who will, a standard bearer who will carry enough votes to win a particular election. We're talking about a new kind of political infrastructure uh, which will nourish and enable a kind of constant civic engagement. So we're looking at a form of political engagement that's a little closer to a social movement, something that's all the time. Now, what's the problem with having something that's all the time? Is that that requires a sustained level of commitment and energy. Where are people going to find the wherewithal to do that? And particularly in this harsh political climate, where every day something's draining our attention uh, and our energy, okay, and distracting us from some, some, you know, from uh, many of the major issues that need to be taken care of. So, people are, have begun to come up with new forms of, uh, or interesting new forms of, 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 organi of political organization. But, you know, one, of, I mean, one way of sort of seeing the current situation in the United States is that we have uh, very, very strong partisanship and very, 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 very weak parties. Mm. And basically party politics uh, uh, disappeared or it did not disappear. It, it, it basically crumbled and is unable to, to contain the conflicts within society anymore. Mm. Uh, what you are telling us is that the sort of the, the uh, usual response to this is, is participatory de democracy uh, is uh, also not a path into the future precisely because it requires a tremendous amount of time and energy that you know, maybe retired professors have, but, uh, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but not, not, not that many other people. So, so the question is, um, what kind of new political forms can sort of um, carry uh, uh, forward uh, those ideals and, 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 and those, those ideas that, 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 that we would like to see survive? 
Well, there, uh, um, in the last 18 months, all sorts of new political organizations have sprung up, including the one that I belong to uh, or participate in, which is indivisible.org. And that was the result of, and that's all about nuts and bolts politics, okay? It's about pressuring politicians to preserve the legacies of the New Deal and the Great Society. So you're talking about Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, civil rights uh, protections, consumer and environmental protections, immigrant rights, and so on and so forth. Okay, and um, those. Um, or, so the organ and so and there are other organizations. There's Swing Left. There's. Uh, um, Sister, what's it called? It's about, and they're about, and these are very much geared toward traditional electoral <coughs> politics. Let's take care, let's flip the Congress, let's flip the state houses that have done all the gerrymandering and so on and so forth. But there's also something more than just that. First of all, Indivisible, for example, it's, it's 6,000 chapters nationwide, okay? And uh, San Francisco's is the second largest. The largest is in Austin, Texas. And we meet every week for two hours. And every week for two hours, we plan what are the issues for this week? What are the issues? Uh, and, and how are we going to address these issues with respect to each politician? And, then, and finally, uh, how are we going to prepare for our biweekly meeting with the sta senior staff of Jackie Spear, Diane Feinstein, Camila Harris, and also local assemblymen and senators? We meet with them on, every two weeks, and we, have a, we develop these relationships. But this is nuts and bolts policy, and we follow the legislative process extremely carefully. We know exactly when to call their offices because such and such bill is on, of which they're the, you know, is before such and such a committee, they're the ranking member, and it's, and it's, or it's in conference or whatever. It's, very, it's a bit technical, but what's amazing is that um, uh, this is something, so this is, has a kind of short-term purpose, which is to, as I said, protect the legacies of these, of these, uh, of the New Deal and, and, and the Great Society, but it also is extending to local and state politics, and we, so this group meets regularly with state assemblymen and women and senators uh, in the state of California. And it's also looking toward the future. And they, they really do understand that it's more than just electing uh, uh, one or two politicians. And in case of liberal California, people might think there's nothing to do. Well, there's plenty to do because a lot of these politicians are not quite prepared to deal with all the intimidation or, let's put it this way, the aggressiveness of their opponents. And we've just come out of a week where we have a bill that was rushed through the Senate that no one except lobbyists had read, and not even the proponents had really read. And that, these are unheard of um, violations of procedure, norms, and, and understandable, you know, what's considered acceptable behavior. It's another revolution in acceptable behavior, if you like. And so they, uh, a lot of politicians are simply not prepared for that. Uh, and so we have, uh, and part of a, these new form, uh, forms of organization, they have to develop strategies of anticipation. They have to anticipate what can go terribly wrong, or maybe what could even go well, well in advance before the moment arrives. And they have, in a sense, a scripted response. They have something ready to go. It's like earthquake preparedness. They really have, they have their list of items. They have something ready to go. And uh, this is not something that is clear to me, speaking for myself, that has been the case of, of, some of, uh, of one major political party in particular. They're always caught by surprise. They're just 
always caught by surprise. And that's, you know, that's one of the things, it's about surprise. It's about catching people off guard. And so one of the small things I hope this book will do is, is bring to, give a kind of map of the minefield, land, lay of the land, but all, and also uh, get people to understand we have to increase our powers of anticipation and we have to be prepared to fight. And, and, and these powers of anticipation will create a kind of rapid response capacity on our part. And it's interesting. Um, we've seen this. There's the Women's March, okay, in January. There was the uh, airports that were flooded with the announcement of the Muslim. These are rapid, you know, relatively very rapid responses and talk about scale, you know, scale. Uh, same thing with the town halls. And uh, Indivisible had a big hand in, in turning out uh, very raucous uh, citizens uh, in, in certain districts to oppose the, uh, uh, propose the uh, dismantling of, of Obamacare. So, speed, you know, just like the, these attacks and these, and these methods are all about speed and preemption and doing the unthinkable, we have to be prepared not only for that, but we have to be prepared to have a very rapid response and even take the offensive. Right now, it's a little hard to imagine taking the offensive because we, 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 there's so many things coming down that have to be fought off. But we have to imagine taking the offensive and have the element of surprise for, on our side. So this, rap, this, um, this indivisible group is actually rather agile because every week we're adjusting what we're doing. Every week we're adjusting what we're doing. And it's not simply nuts and bolts politics. Sometimes we go out into the street and hold demonstrations. But to go back to new forms of politics, we need nuts and bolts politics of a very fast, agile, su you know, supple kind. But we also need a kind of uh, certain political pressure that comes from social movements and from the street. And if you don't have both, you're not, we're, 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 we're in trouble. They feed off, they're, they're not an easy, ten they're in tension with each other. There's lots of disagreement, but you need both. And so... Um, so there th there's another example of a rapid response. It's, for example, the NRA put out a video, I guess it was this summer or early fall, where it accused Jews and blacks of fomenting violence and basically issued a call for being violent uh, towards those groups and, and to and intimidate them. And uh, Black Lives Matter came out with a, within 24 hours, I believe, with a counter video, which was you know, spread over the Internet, where they, they, you know, they went on the counterattack. It wasn't left to just proliferate without a response uh, through the capillaries of, of the Internet. So it's that, it's, but that, that kind of speed, that kind of power of anticipation, that requires work. It's a lot of labor, a lot of commitment, and uh, it's something that um, you know, is, is not easy to do. Yeah. So what I suggest is that we wrap up our conversation, okay. and uh, I would so let's give a round of round of applause to to Roddy. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.